This episode contains descriptions of domestic violence and ableism and brief discussions of suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The Manton House has been unoccupied by mortals for more than 10 years and with its outbuildings is slowly falling into decay. It is two stories in height, nearly square, its front pierced by a single doorway flanked on each side by a window boarded up to the very top. Corresponding windows above, not protected, serve to admit light and rain to the rooms of the upper floor. Grass and weeds grow pretty rankly all about, and a few shade trees, somewhat the worse for wind, and leaning all in one direction, seem to be making a concerted effort to run away. In short, as the Marshalltown humorist explained in the columns of the advance, the proposition that the Manton House is badly haunted is the only logical conclusion for the premises. The fact that in this dwelling, Mr. Manton thought it expedient one night, some ten years ago, to rise and cut the throats of his wife and two small children has no doubt done its share in directing public attention to the fitness of the place for supernatural phenomena. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the swamps of Bangladesh. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Each week, Ghost Stories reimagines chilling paranormal tales from history's most sinister storytellers, told like you've never heard them before. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's tale comes from a writer whose life and death were as dark and shocking as his art. Ambrose Bierce was a renowned journalist, satirist, and Civil War veteran. A portion of his short stories were inspired by the things he'd seen on the battlefield. Bierce was an early innovator in the psychological horror genre, known for writing stories with deplorable characters. And The Middle Toe of the Right Foot, first published in 1890, is no exception. One would be hard-pressed to decide which is more frightening in Bierce's work, the ghosts or the humans. I will be telling the story from the point of view of Mr. King, a sheriff's deputy in the small town of Marshall, a rough-and-tumble outpost in the American Southwest. The West was still wild back then, and as you'll soon discover, Mr. King's hat is anything but white. Coming up, we'll break into a haunted house in the Old West. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. 
Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm not what they call an emotional kind of person. I live by my actions and keep my thoughts to myself. I might believe in God, but his house has never quite been my confessional. This bar, with its smell of yeast and sin, has always suited me better. So, please, lend me your ear, because I find myself in need of unburdening, and you look like the right face to unburden to. I'll tell you things as I remember them, but I'm getting a little old. Between the drink and my age, they might not come out in the right order. Bear with me though, and you'll have a great story to tell after I'm buried. Lawman is a relative term in Marshall. Always has been, always will be. Old Adams thinks being sheriff for five odd years makes him a moral authority. He neglects to mention that no one else wanted the job. Marshall is a small town. We don't even get desperados, since the bank is 20 miles away in Harriston. Adams says we're the most peaceful place in the West, and I always nod and smile. This makes him think I have a good head on my shoulders, and those with good heads on their shoulders get to be deputies. Being a deputy isn't hard. It's mostly stolen horses and unruly drunks. And the nice thing about being a deputy is that when you get drunk or steal horses, people look the other way. Now, don't you turn Adams on me. I always give the horses back and apologize to the Lord while I'm sweating in church on Sundays. Anyway, the strange tale I'm about to recount happened on one of those drunken Saturday nights, which is my first defense. That's when I took Mr. Sancher, Rosser, and Grossmith up to the old Manton house. I've known Mr. Sancher and Mr. Rosser for years. We've shared more than a few drinks and more than a few dust-ups. Grossmith, on the other hand, was a stranger. He'd come into Marshall by stagecoach just the day before. We were all drinking at the saloon when Rosser noticed the strange gentleman eavesdropping on our conversation and confronted Grossmith with a few choice words. Grossmith, furious with Rosser's impertinence, challenged Rosser to a duel. Rosser set the terms, which was how I ended up unlocking the door to the old Manton house with two bowie knives in my hand. They decided to hold the duel in the abandoned house at dusk. Whoever emerged with the fewest wounds was the winner. Grossmith appeared to be familiar with the dark stories surrounding the Manton house, despite being an unknown in our town. He said word traveled far when it came to the Manton tragedy. It certainly was hard to forget, especially when you were a deputy like me. Gertrude Manton was a pretty little thing. 
She kept her own counsel, much to her detriment when it came to Mr. Manton. The couple had two little girls with long, dark hair like their mother's. They always followed after her in the general store, too shy to wave hello, even when you tipped your hat. Mr. Manton didn't seem to have a profession other than drinking and unkindness. His wife was accomplished at weaving and mending, so he let her do all the work and then some. She was the breadwinner, and he liked it that way. Which is why it was so strange that one day, for reasons neither the inquest or the sheriff could determine, Manton murdered his wife and daughters. One by one, each delicate throat was slit, coated in sticky blood. Mrs. Manton was still in her pale night shift when we found her, clutching her little ones as if she could use the fabric of her gown to hide them from their father. It was clear the culprit was Manton. He fled with a packed bag, and a bank clerk in Harriston said he withdrew all he had and took a coach to God knows where. I won't ever forget Mrs. Manton. The poor dear did her best with what she had. These events happened long before the property was claimed by disrepair, but over the years, the place has gotten more frightening with each passing month. The lower windows are boarded up and the door is blocked, but folks say they still see shapes moving in the windows up above, where the jagged glass opens the second floor up to the elements. No one can enter the house but Sheriff Adams or I, as the property was willed to the county after Manton's disappearance. Yet somehow, many folks say they've managed to get in and have felt something chilling in the darkness. They believed someone was watching them, waiting for something alive to enter so they could trap them inside. It was the perfect place for a duel in the dark. Neither Mr. Rosser, Sancho, nor I fear the supernatural. As I said, I apologize to God on Sundays and he keeps me safe for the rest of the week, despite me making his job exceedingly difficult. Grossmith claimed to be a skeptic, but the way he shivered as we approached hinted at a deeper unease. I was relieved I was walking ahead of the villain. He couldn't see my smirk when I mumbled, if you're afraid of spooks, Grossmith growled, I'm afraid of nothing. Then he pushed past me into the dark house. I glanced at Rossa, who smiled and shook his head. The old fool really thought he had us. He'll change his tune in an hour or so, I whispered to Rossa as he passed through the doorway. The darkness was complete. Boards covered the windows and the moon struggled to offer even a sliver of light through the open door. I lit my lantern and held it high, surveying the space. Dust clung to every piece of broken furniture. The very air itself felt heavy, inhospitable. I felt a soft, familiar touch along my shoulder, but when I turned my head, nothing was there. I reminded myself that the only thing that haunted this place was sorrow but I couldn't shake the sensation of a set of eyes gazing at me from the shadows. I glanced at Grossmith, but his expression was inscrutable. 
Rosser removed his duster and handed his pistols to me. Grossmith did the same with Sancha. I gave them each a knife and ordered them to opposite corners of the room, swinging my lantern wide. I ostensibly did this to check for safety, but I was also on the lookout for that restless spirit in the shadows. But the glow of my lantern revealed nothing but empty corners and the fleeting tail of a single rat. The combatants took their positions. I admit I was biased enough to place my friend Rossi nearest the door so he could get out in a hurry if Grossmith hurt him. Grossmith knew I disliked him. I made no secret of that. I reminded them that they could not begin their fight until Sancho and I left. They nodded and passed their knives from hand to hand. Then I stepped out the door, closed it, and placed my ear up against the wood. I had nothing at first, so I glanced back at Sancho, who was feeding the draft horse that brought us there. I was studying the animal's jaw as it chewed when I heard the soft, unmistakable giggle of a child from within the house. I shook my head. No, there were no children here, only the memory of them. I listened closer. I heard the laugh again, strangely piercing. Then the sound of a mother quieting her little one. The soft breaths were familiar to me. I wondered if Grossmith could hear it too. It was then that I realized that I heard no duel, no signs of struggle. It was as if my friend and our enemy had disappeared completely. I reached for the door handle, but I barely touched it before it opened on its own. Rosser rushed past me and grabbed my hand to pull me to the cart. I wasn't sure what he yelled at Sancho, only that we were moving before he could even sit. Rosser begged me not to look back, but I did anyway. The front door still stood open, but this time the house was lit from within. I told myself that the figure that filled the doorway was Grossmith, waving to indicate that he'd won the duel by default. But it was two forms, not one, and a good deal smaller than Grossmith. Their hair was long, their little nightgowns flowing softly in the breeze. The Manton girls looked so very much like their mother. Same eyes, same cheeks, same smiles. The space beneath their chins began to widen and bleed. Their heads slid from their shoulders, hanging on by ragged, fleshy threads. Oh, Gertie, I cried softly to myself. I wish I hadn't been such a fool. I was grateful that Rosser and Sancha said nothing. They knew as well as I did that I was the one who'd set this all in motion a long time ago. And it wasn't finished. Not by a long shot. Up next, Mr. King reveals the story behind his story. Parcasters, I am so thrilled to tell you about my latest series, Superstitions. 
If you haven't had a chance to give it a listen yet, there are already some eerily enjoyable episodes to binge before catching all new ones every Wednesday. Each week on Superstitions, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why shouldn't you walk under an open ladder? What's the real reason we should be wary of black cats? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each episode presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem cryptic or illogical or completely insane. But then again, do they? Follow my new Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes air weekly every Wednesday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. I have not told the sheriff the story about what happened at the Manton House, and I don't plan to. If he'd known his deputy was letting strange men into a haunted house to have knife duels with his friends, I'm certain I'd be his deputy no longer. But you've been a good listener at any rate. I apologize if any of this has been confusing. I realize I've left out some details and covered them up in vagary. Could be my brain avoiding the real problem, but I like to think I'm making it a better story for you. You see... To really understand what happened that night, you have to know about the afternoon that preceded it. I was drinking at this very saloon, as I often do on Saturday afternoons, and pontificating on the notion of the perfect woman. I said, I hate any kind of imperfection in a woman, whether natural or acquired. I have a theory that any physical imperfection has a matching mental and moral defect. Rosser laughed and said, I infer then that a lady lacking the moral advantage of a nose would never become Mrs. King. I resisted the urge to pour my whiskey into his lap. Of course, you may put it that way, but I once cut ties with a most charming girl on learning she had suffered the amputation of a toe. My conduct was brutal, but if I had married that girl, I would have been miserable for life. And I'd have made her miserable too. Sancha laughed and shot back, whereas by marrying a gentleman of more liberal views, the girl in question merely escaped with a slit throat. A silence fell over us then, long and deep. You see, Sancha was referring to a former lover of mine, who happened to be the victim of a madman too. When I had known the dearly departed Gertrude Manton, she was Gertie Brewer, pretty, quiet, and very much in love with me. As I think back now, I wonder if that was the moral defect to which I referred. 
Should you blame a kind soul for her poor judgment in lovers, or blame the world for its judgment on her? Rosser was quick to recover from the awkwardness in his usual fashion. He nodded to a man in the corner, that same Mr. Grossmith I have mentioned previously. His ear was bent in our direction. Rosser rose from his seat. Sir, I think it would be better if you would move your chair to the other end of the veranda. This side is for gentlemen only. Grossmith rose in turn. A fight was brewing, and Sanchez stepped between them, ever the peacemaker. I, with my deputy's badge still in my saddlebag, should have done more. I was too transfixed by this man's face and the prospect of revenge. Though time had carved its mark through his visage, Grossmith was no stranger. His features were obscured by a beard and sideburns, and the sun had tanned him like cowhide. But it was the eyes that struck me. You couldn't hide those cold eyes. I'd only come across them a handful of times, but I'd never forget that icy quality. I did not hear Rosser arranging the duel, only that I knew it would be coming. I leaned into Rosser's ear, perhaps pulling him a bit too forcefully. Knives at the Manton House, I ordered. But do not tell him where we're going. Rosser looked at me strangely for a moment before trusting my play. He smiled his usual roguish smile, then challenged Grossmith. I'll meet you here two hours hence with my terms. Then you'll have your satisfaction. The man calling himself Grossmith stomped off, leaving my two friends to look at me bewildered. Do you not recognize him? I said. That was Henry Manton. Sancho's face went pale. Should we get Sheriff Adams? Not yet, I said, watching Grossmith go. He had evaded punishment once already, long ago. I wasn't about to let him ride off again. Things then proceeded as I told you, though not quite according to my original plan. I agreed to let Rossa protect his honor first with a duel, then I would force that murderer Manton to face his past and earn a pat on the head from old Adams when I brought him in. But that was not at all how things went. I escorted both men to the house, hoping to scare some sort of confession out of Manton. But something got to him before I did. Something that was looking for blood rather than words. After the duel, I told Sancha and Rossa I'd take care of things. But how I would or what I was actually dealing with seemed a great and horrible mystery to me. I was still deliberating it the next morning when I heard the distinct shuffle and weight of my superior's spurs. Good morning, King, Sheriff Adams said in his irritatingly upbeat way. Ready to head out to the mountains? My heart stopped. In my Saturday whiskey haze, I'd forgotten the plans I agreed to for Sunday morning. Mr. Brewer, Gertie's youngest brother, had come from Yuma to obtain her effects. He was several years too late for me to believe he actually cared about his long-deceased sister, but as he was legally entitled to her property, 
we had an obligation to escort him there. Brewer was a bookish little man, far too prim for the land his family had chosen. As we travelled in the large cart we obtained to haul Gertie's things, the man seemed to grow more nauseous with every rock and sway. My nausea had an entirely different cause. I couldn't anticipate what I'd find in that house. Rossa refused to speak of the prior night's events, and in truth, I did not know exactly what horrific fate befell Menton. But no possible outcome seemed good. I'd either been complicit in Rossa stabbing Manton, or I'd let Rossa get away. If the sheriff got wind of my actions, I'd be out of a job. Hell, I might even get run out of town. Sheriff Adams did his best to make small talk with Brewer as we approached the house, but his pleasant chatting stopped as soon as he noticed the door was unlocked. His hand moved to his holster as he pushed it open. Sunlight spilled into the room and dust motes swirled everywhere. The house seemed almost cheery in the light of day. The pile of Manton's and Rosser's coats was still lying on the ground. But they could have been anyone's dusters. And much to my relief, Adams paid them no mind. There was a chaos of footprints in the thick dust from the night before. That alone was somewhat suspicious. But when we drew closer to the corner where Manton, aka Grossmith, had been standing, we were greeted by a ghastly sight. Mr. Manton was crouching with his back against the wall, seemingly frozen. His hands were still curled in front of his face, as if trying to escape some spirit's horrible gaze. And his mouth hung open in an impossibly long expression of terror. He was dead. Stone dead. Brewer squinted through his spectacles and asked incredulously, Manton? Indeed, I said gruffly, trying for a mix of calm and surprise that I hoped would sound deputy-like. I considered telling the truth, but I could see no value in it. Rossa had done nothing wrong, and all's well that had ended well for me. Gertie's killer was dead, and that was a good thing. I was working to assure myself of this when my eyes alighted on the greatest horror I've experienced to this day. There were four men's footprints in the dust from the scuffle the night before, yes but there were two more sets of footprints. These were from bare feet and small, tiny and perfect as they led up to Manton's body. Two little girls drawing closer and closer to their father. Had they known he was the one who killed them? Did they smile with those big, innocent eyes as they attacked. But far worse, far, far worse, was the set of footprints that lurked behind them. Feminine and light, but clear in the sheet of dust on the wood, so clear in fact that you could see each individual toe. 
and where a toe was supposed to be, but wasn't. The spirit was missing a middle toe on the right foot. There was only one woman in town who'd had that affliction, and I had the dumb sense not to marry her because of my stupid ideas about imperfection. That got her killed. So Gertie got her revenge on both of us. She brought justice to her husband and robbed me of the pleasure of arresting him. Don't tell Adams I'm behind all of this, all right? He's liable to send me back to that house if he knew. And if Gertie's ghost recognizes me, well, I will admit there's a defect in my character. One I have to work a great deal to mend. Maybe I deserve whatever punishment she wants to give me. Luring her murderer to the scene of the crime wasn't exactly kind. I treated her just as bad in death as in life. I miss her sometimes, but the regret eats away at everything else. I have my own role in both Gertie and her husband's deaths, and so I drink a little less now. I don't judge people anymore for their imperfections. I'm trying to be a better man. I hope that is enough. And no, don't trouble yourself. You've put up with my rambling. So tonight, your drinks are on me. Ambrose Bierce's short stories are best known for their twist endings, which have been said to reflect Bierce's cynicism and macabre humor in the face of death, a perspective he carried to the end of his own life. At the age of 71, Bierce famously left the United States and headed to Mexico, which was amidst a revolution. He had supposedly gone there in search of Pancho Villa, but in 1914, Bierce was never found. Many regarded such a dangerous journey so late in life as Bierce's own attempt as suicide by conflict. In some ways, the middle toe of the right foot is one of Bierce's most straightforward stories. The events are brief and well-contained, though he does experiment with a flashback structure that would become almost cliche in future media. I bet you're wondering how I got here, the protagonist says, when we find them in a tense and improbable situation. Then we snap back to a few days earlier, armed with the what, but not the why. Though the tale is told in an innovative and fanciful way, its events are based on a real, ugly act of violence. The middle toe of the right foot was inspired by a November 1888 article in the paper Bierce worked for, the San Francisco Examiner, known then as the Daily Examiner. The article described an incident in Birmingham, Alabama, when two men decided to duel to the death with bowie knives in a darkened room. The men stabbed each other savagely again and again, and both perished as a result of their wounds. But in this story, King and his friends only mean to give Henry Manton a scare. 
Unfortunately for Mr. Manton, his wronged wife and children wanted something far worse. To scare him to death. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Adriana Gomez and Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. Bad omens? Good fortune? Pure luck? Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow my new podcast series, Superstitions. Start binging now before catching all new episodes every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>